0: This message is going to push hard against the culture that we live in. And it could be that when this is over, you could say, well, I didn't like what Mark had to say. Could I just tell you right up front, if it's, all, if it's just me, you can completely disregard it. I'm like a letter carrier. But I haven't done this in the previous services, but I want to do this because I think it'll help you understand my, my responsibility and accountability. I think a lot of people have the idea, I don't mean at Newspring. But a lot of people have the idea that a minister's job is to bring a message that will be popular with, with people. And I hope it always is comforting. But I want you to hear what my responsibility is. In the quintessential chapter in the Bible in which pastors are charged, the Bible says, I solemnly urge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he appears to set up his kingdom. Preach the word of God. Be prepared. Whether the time is favorable or not. (laughs) Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. That time has come. And I'm going to have to answer to God. And so today I want to preach the most challenging and definitely the most important message I've ever brought. If I ever spoke to a generation, I'm about to do that now. Our series is called Clash of Dynasties. And you know, of course, if you've been with us for any of these messages, they have to do with Bible prophecy. But Bible prophecy is not a means to, it's not an end within itself. It's a means to an end. And that end is that we understand that right now we are involved in a clash of dynasties. That clash began before the world was ever created. God created angels. Lucifer, the most beautiful of the angels, went rogue. And he decided to start a revolution in heaven. And according to Revelation chapter 3, he took a third of the angels with him. We know Lucifer now by his name Satan or the devil. And we know demons or those angels that went rogue, we know them as demons. And that clash has been in existence before the world was ever spun into the universe. But we know clearly what that clash did when our first parents were up to bat. Because Satan went into the Garden of Eden and he swindled our parents out of their destiny. And by extension, you and me as well. We see that clash in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus, the night before his crucifixion, prayed... And dealt with the spiritual battle that it took to go to the cross. And the Bible says he sweat as though it were great drops of blood. And definitely we see that clash at the cross. But what I want us to understand today is that that clash of dynasties is not going to continue. The clash is going to come to an end. And it could be that you've heard heard the term end times. But I want you to understand that the the expression end times is not about the end. It's actually about the beginning. It's about things being the way God wanted them to be in the first place. So when we use the term end times, what we're talking about is the end of the clash. Because Satan is not going to be able to keep this clash going. God had something to do. We talked about that the other day. God had something to do for these thousands of years in between. And there's going to be a time when God is going to call time... And Satan's class is going to be finished. God's enemy, Satan, your enemy, the Bible calls him the accuser of our brothers and sisters, the one who accuses us day and night. God's enemy, your enemy, is going to run out of time. Satan cannot win. He understood from the very beginning there was no way. From the moment he was cast out of heaven with his demons, he understood he was not going to win. Trust me on this. Satan believes the Bible better than you do. Because he knows God. He's got millennia, and perhaps even more than that, of history with God, he knows God keeps his word. He understands clearly that he is not going to win, but he wants to take as many people to hell with him. He'd like to take you to hell with him if he can. The Bible tells us this in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 12. It helps us understand our times. He is filled with fury, speaking of Satan, because he knows that his time is short. To all of us to whom truth decency morality and justice still matter we find ourselves living in a world that is so wicked we can barely comprehend it for many years i would hear people say things have always been this way when you look at our globe in 2022 things have not always been this way the decline in just the last 10 years has been breathtaking But there is no reason for us to be surprised. This is Satan's last gasp. He's pulling out all the stops. The Bible said this was going to happen, and I have good news for you. God has everything totally in control. I mean, he wrote the end from the beginning. As someone said, when I was a kid, preachers used to say, I've read the back of the book, and we win. Or better, he wins. Now, I've said all that before, and that's not what this message is about, or at least it's definitely not the reason why this is the most important message I've, I've ever brought. Let me start here. Back in the Bible, there was, a church in, uh, there was a church in a town called Thessalonica. And they got very wound up about Bible prophecy. And some of them wondered if they were already in the tribulation. And I think Christians have probably wondered about that a lot of times because things got so bad. And so the church in Thessalonica were like, oh, no, maybe we're in the tribulation already. And God allowed the apostle Paul to write this clarification. Second 2 Thessalonians 2.3. Let no one deceive you. That day, and we're talking about the tribulation there, that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. That's an expression for the Antichrist. So what Paul is saying, look, don't freak out over this. Things are tough right now, but the tribulation is not going to come till two things happen in sequence. The first thing is there is going to be this falling away that's going to take place. Then the Antichrist will be revealed. Now, I really believe that the Antichrist being revealed is what does begin the tribulation. But I don't want to talk about him today. I want to talk about that falling away thing. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. And I try not to get into biblical languages too much, but sometimes we really do have to go there. Right now, we need to go there. Those English words, falling away, come from a Greek word that's really two Greek words jammed together. That is apostasia. I mean, you could probably recognize pretty quickly we get our word apostasy from that. But those two words, those two Greek words that are jammed together, the root word is stasis, which means to stand. Some of you in medicine, use, you have that in some of your nomenclature. It means to stand. Apo is the Greek prefix, which means away. So here's what God is telling us. Right before the tribulation happens, there is going to be this great I don't stand where I used to stand. There was a time when I believed this, but because of the pressure, I now am believing this. I don't stand where I used to stand. I used to believe this was wrong, but you know what? That's not politically correct anymore, and people call me a hater, so you know what? I'm going to stand in a different place. You know, I used to believe that Jesus was Lord and Savior, but, you know, there's probably lots of ways to getting to God. And so I don't stand where I used to stand. And the Bible says that is going to be, as far as I can tell, the last sign before the tribulation begins. Now, I don't plan to be here for the tribulation. I think Jesus is coming at the beginning of that or right before. We'll leave that for another discussion. But it could be that you're here today and you say, Mark, I really don't like this message because you know what? I've made some changes in how I used to view things. I used to I know what the Bible says, but I also know that I probably would not be looked at as as politically correct. And so I, I don't stand where I used to stand. Well, you are a sign of the coming of the Lord and the tribulation. I know this. I don't want to be part of that falling away. I can't afford to be part of that falling away. And whatever else I have to give up in these last days, if it's my popularity or my social media account or anything much more important than that, it's not worth my eternal soul. It is not worth my eternal soul to be popular. Nothing's worth going to hell for. Now. Take that statement, the great falling away that's going to happen before Jesus comes back, and add it to a statement that Jesus made, one of the most challenging things he ever said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 verse 21. He said, "On that judgment day, look at the next word, many. Many will say to me, "Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We performed many miracles. In your name. Jesus said, but I will reply, I never knew you. I don't know you. Go away from me, you who break God's laws. I'm not a I'm an old guy now. I remember reading this even when I was a kid. And but all my life, the same question comes back to me what is it that went wrong for these people? I mean, salvation is so simple, it's the easiest thing in the world. Romans 10.9, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's one sentence. Well, these people that stand before Jesus, they're in the queue expecting to go to heaven. They get up to the checkout lane and Jesus is there and Jesus is like, I'm sorry, I don't know you. With salvation being so simple and free, how could what Jesus talked about happen? And it's important for that we realize these were not atheists. They weren't Pharisees. I mean, we know the Pharisees were the chief nemesis of Jesus, but these people weren't Pharisees. They keep talking about Jesus' name. like We did this in your name, in your name, in your name, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Christ. We are Christians. The last thing, and I prayed so hard about this, is I, I, I prayed hard about this message in any I'll ever, I've ever brought. This is what I prayed about the most. I don't want anybody to be scared by this, but I want us to take it seriously, and in, especially in our times, because we're in the times of the great falling away. And I heard what Jesus will say. Many will say, hey, Lord, 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 Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I was a Christian. I listened to Christian music, and I you know, read Christian books, and all sudden, you are fine in their place. I went to church. And Jesus will say, I'm sorry, don't know you what goes wrong i mean what is it that went sideways here i mean it can't it can't be that it was too hard it can't be that it required too much intellectualism because the thief on the cross got it real fast i mean he started cussing jesus when he first got on the cross but by the time he was about ready to die he said lord remember me when you come in your kingdom jesus it'll be with me today in paradise it can't be that difficult it can't take that much time the thief on the cross proves that There was a tax collector, Jonathan, taught us the other day. They were the scum of the scum. And yet this guy realized what a sinner he was, and he didn't even know what to say to God. He just hit himself in the chest because he felt so bad about what he had done. And he just said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, that man went home justified. Can't be that hard. Well, maybe we get a clue. From something else Jesus said in that context where he said, many will say, and I'll say, I didn't know. Let's read this out of the Amplified, which puts in implications of the language there. And then I will say to them, Jesus said, depart from me, you who act wickedly. Now remember, they talked real good. You who act wickedly, and then this is a very important phrase, disregarding my commands. Now, what Jesus was saying there was a quotation from the book of Psalms. So right now, since we want to know what Jesus was talking about, let's go back and look at that quotation from the book of Psalms so it'll make sense to us. Psalm 50, verse 16. God says, why bother reciting my decrees? Remember, these are are more talkers here. Why bother reciting my decrees and pretending to obey my covenant? For you refuse my discipline and you treat my words like trash. Let me give this to you. Here's what the Hebrew is talking about here. You ever see somebody litter? Isn't that a terrible thing? You ever see somebody like eating like a, a package of snacks or something, and they get through and they eat the snacks and they just sort of wide up and throw it down behind them? That's exactly what the Hebrew is saying there. These are people that talk about God. These are people that, I mean, they they, they talk about, well, wow, I have this relationship with God, but then when it comes to like what God has to say about living, they just throw it down like a used wrapper. It is critical that I say this right now. You and I are not saved by God's commands. We're not saved by obeying God's commands. But isn't something wrong if a person claims that Jesus is their Lord and they throw down his words like trash? I mean, that's in congress. It doesn't doesn't work. This is the third time this weekend this place has been packed. And thank you for all of you in South Auditorium and North Auditorium, those of you watching online, watching on television. You could say, Mark, is it really a big enough deal to utilize one of the weekends of 2022 at New Spring to talk about this? Fair question. 65% of your fellow citizens claim to be Christians. There is a group called the Barna Group that dives deep into statistics analyzing trends of American Christians. And just a recent analysis revealed that only 6% of Americans have a biblical worldview. 61% of millennials claim to be Christians. Only 2% of millennials claim to have a biblical, or have a biblical worldview worldview. I want to be real clear on something. We're not talking about like complicated, nuanced doctrine of the church. I mean, Christian churches disagree sometimes on the form of mode of baptism. They disagree about spiritual gifts and what spiritual gifts are for today. We're not talking about those kinds of things. We're just talking about basics. Bible stuff, basic stuff of what it means to know God. I mean, here they are, seven things. Absolute truth exists. God is the all-knowing creator. Satan is real. Salvation is by grace and can't be earned. Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on the earth. The Bible is the word of God. Christians have the responsibility to share our faith. That's about as simple as it gets. 65% of Americans claim to be Christians, and yet only 6% believe those basic Bible things. This is the one that keeps me up at night. Only 17% of practicing Christians have a biblical worldview. Where's the breakdown? Why do we have such a breakdown in a generation that we can't afford to have it in? Well, I know there are some of the more pharisaical among us who use this as the opportunity and say, I know what the problem is. The problem is cheap grace. And by cheap grace, they mean, wow, if you're going to be a Christian, you've got to do this, 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 and this, and this in order to get in. Well, the answer is not cheap grace because grace is free, and if you paid anything for it, you paid too much. And so, as I said, there are some... In the more pharisaical among the religious who will say, well, it's got to be by the good things that you do. But I know it can't be that because in Titus 3, the Bible says he saved us because of his mercy and not because of any good things that we have done. Ephesians 2, 9, salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so that none of us can boast about it. No, I mean, to, to say that the answer is salvation by good works, it's just trading one poison for another poison. Salvation is so simple, the breakdown can only be in one of two places. There are so many verses in the Bible that tell us how to be saved. Romans ten nine, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Romans 10, 13. John three sixteen, On and on and on it goes. But perhaps the, the most succinct and the simplest statement of what it means to be saved is in Acts sixteen thirty one. And I know why. Because this is Paul and Silas when they... They delivered, they, they helped a girl who was just being afflicted by Satan and, and it made the town mad. And they arrested Paul and Silas, put them in jail, beat them, you know, beat their backs bloody, put them in prison. And at midnight, they were singing praises. I'm not sure how you do that after you've been beaten and you're putting stocks in a prison, but they did. And when they did, by the way, when you worship, stuff happens in heaven. And God sent an earthquake. And all the prisoners were free. And in those days, a a jailer, if they let the prisoners get away, they had to replace their lives with his life. And so he was about to commit suicide, and Paul stopped him and said, don't do that, we're all here. And the guy was so touched and moved that he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's as straight as you can ask the question. Now look at the answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. That's it. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. So 65% of Americans claim to be Christians and only 6% hold to to the Bible basic truth, the breakdown has got to come in one of those two clauses. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's It's either a misunderstanding of what it means to be saved or what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. Let's take that apart for the next 15 minutes. The breakdown could come over what it means to be saved. Now, that could worry some of you right now, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to hold you in suspicion anymore. I'm going to give you the short version, and then we'll back up, and then we'll extend this. But here's what I'm talking about on this thing about it could be a mistake about what it means to be saved. In Matthew chapter 1, the angel came to announce the birth of Jesus, and here is the statement. He will save his people from their sins. He didn't say he will save his people from hell. By extension, that's true, but it's not what he said. He did not say he will save his people from judgment. It's true by extension. That's not what he said. He said he will save his people from their sins. But if a person has no problem with sin, if a person actually thinks God is wrong about what he calls sin, then asks to be saved, that makes zero sense. That's incoherent. Uh, 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 that's just in Congress. Here's where this talk gets really serious. In these last days, Satan is reading his little last gasp of destiny, and he's been trying to turn God's order upside down. You know, when, for all of us who have seen movies about the Antichrist, is often like some hideous figure. Listen, Antichrist is just what his name suggests. He is anti Christ. So consequently, everything that God is about. The enemy is about the opposite. I mean, I mean, look at what's happened in, in just education and teaching and culture in the last, say, 150 years. I mean, when you read the Bible and you read about all the things in our world, God calls it creation. But we have replaced that with nature. As if all of God's creation is just baked in and that's our starting point. And then we, we work from that and try to go forward, try to work our way back. And it's very intellectually convenient. It's also very intellectually vacuous. God says there was a creator. In the last 150 years, we've decided that, no, we were not created. We we're products of random rolls of the cosmic dice. God gave a definition of marriage. But we are changing that today. In Genesis chapter 1, the Bible says, He made them male and female. But we are watching our culture invert that today, and I feel it, and you feel it. The pressure is to cave, like and fold like a cheap suit, and go right along with it. But if I embrace Satan's kingdom and then I ask God to transfer me into His kingdom, it makes no sense. The problem. It's not that God won't save me. The problem is I'm confused about which dynasty I want to be part of. Most people know John 3, 16. It's the most famous verse in the Bible. God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Okay, we know that. But do you know what comes three verses later? The Bible's Jesus said, Jesus speaking, this is the verdict. This is heaven's court. This is not one of earth's courts, not a church. It's heaven's verdict. This is the verdict. Light. Light is truth. Light, Light is good. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light. Again, I'm sorry for going into biblical languages again, but this time it's really, really, really important the the usual word greek word for love is phileo it means friendship i mean city of brotherly love philadelphia the word that is used for the love of god and god's love for us the love that we have for each other that god puts in our hearts it was a word that was almost exclusively used by the church it was the word agape so whenever I'm reading John three nineteen, I hear that men love darkness. I'm ready to find that word phileo. You know, men found a friend out of darkness. And yet it blew my mind when I was reading it in Greek because the Bible says men agape darkness. It was like darkness became their God. You speak truth today and a blast furnace will come out because what you've done is you've spoken after, you've spoken against the darkness We're living in an age where the signs have been changed, the labels have been changed. Good is now evil, and evil is now good. Our generation says God's truth about marriage and sexuality is hate. It's not really hate, just a control mechanism to get you to fold. That good is no longer good and sin is to be celebrated and honored, that truth is a lie and lies are truth, that darkness is light and light is darkness. And the problem is, millions of Americans embrace this and then turn around and ask God to save them, not from their darkness. God would do that, like that. It's not that they want God to save them from their darkness, it's like they want hell insurance so that they can be saved celebrating their darkness. Man, uh, Jesus called this way better than I can possibly call it. I want you to hear the words of Jesus here. He said, if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep is that darkness? In other words, if you think, you're, if you think what you believe is good because it's politically correct, but at the same time, heaven views it as darkness, God is saying, if, if that light you think you have is darkness and darkness, the person actually becomes irredeemable. I think I know why some of this happens. And forgive me for a really corny illustration. Whenever our senior team gets together, they know if they want to see me grimace, all they have to say is the word tickets. See, at NewSpring. I mean, our normal services are pretty large. So when we have Easter or Christmas Eve, I mean, there are times when we have 3,000 people, over 3,000 people here for one service. And so because we're afraid of the services, not, you know, some, some service having to turn people away, which you've had to do several times, the experts say, well, what you need to do is ticket. But I will never charge for a service for people to come and worship God. So at that point, if I give out a ticket, it's a free ticket. Well, that just means a seat is is reserved. But what we've learned about free tickets is that people tend to look at them as many invites. And I remember one of those so-called experts telling me, Mark, you have to charge for it because when something is free, people think, think it has no value. Well, that's never going to be an issue with us at New Spring. But I will tell you this, I can't get his, ear, his words out of my ears. When people hear that salvation is free, that we are saved from our sin. I can't help but wonder if American postmodern Christians are hearing that as if to say, well, if salvation is free, then sin must not be such a big deal. And you know, you know what people say, nobody's perfect, like that's news. After all, nobody's perfect. Must not matter that much. If the culture says it's not sin anymore, then I'm good with that. It's free. Maybe we better back up for a moment and look at what it actually cost. God sent his son into the world to live the life that you can't live. Because at the end of the day, there's darkness in every one of us, and there will be as long as we live. There's just a part of me that is sinful, and I sin every day, and I can't be perfect for 30 minutes. But here's the deal. I know the difference between the darkness and the light. And so God had a solution for my darkness. He sent his son into the world to live the life that I couldn't live. But the time came when human beings, during the time of Jesus, they got to do to Jesus what they wanted to do to God. If they could have gotten their hands on God, they would have liked to have pulled out his beard, but they couldn't pull out God's beard. He was in heaven, so they pulled out Jesus' beard by the roots. They hit him in the face. (laughs) Our world has stopped over one slap. (laughs) And I have no comment on that. There's been enough. (laughs) But did you know a whole police force slapped Jesus repeatedly? They took a crown of thorns And they put it on his head and they took a a reed and they beat those thorns into his head until they sliced through the tender part of his temples. And then they whipped him. Not with a regular whip. They whipped him with a Roman cat of nine tails. Just so you know what that is. That's a hard handle with nine leather thongs. And embedded in those thongs are jagged bits of metal and glass. So that whenever the lictor would bring the whip down on the body of a person whose hands were tied above his head, that that whip would embed into the body with the glass and the metal, and then they would pull it away and pull the flesh away. Historians tell us a lot of people never survived the whipping. Isaiah would say when we would see him, he didn't, he didn't even look human. And then after that, they put a heavy crossbeam on him, and he carried that cross down the Via Dolorosa, and then they got him to a place called Calvary. I had a chance to be in Jerusalem and where they think it happened, and, and it was a rotten, ratty place. It was a trash dump. Usually they had to force victims to put their hands down so that they could nail them to the cross. You may see pictures of people tying crucifixion victims to the cross. Well, the Romans often did that, but the reason why they nailed these three was two of the guys that were on either side of Jesus had been insurrectionists, and they had run, they had, and they were hard to catch. And so the Romans were saying, you know what, you won't run away from nails. And Jesus wound up being crucified that day. And they took his left hand and they held it out and they drove a nail through the tender part of his wrist into the the cross. And they took his other hand, his right hand, and they nailed it to a cross. They crossed his ankles and drove a nail, a spike through the tender part of his ankles. And then when that was done, they pulled the cross up with a rope and it jolted down into a hole so that all of Jesus' body weight came down against those three nails. And just so you'll know, for the next six hours, Jesus is going to have to do this to get every breath because hanging on across the body would sag down into the chest cavity. So every time he wants to get a breath, he has to pull up against the nails that hold his his hands and push off against the nail that holds his ankle. He's got to do that for every breath of breath of air for six hours. That's what forgiveness for my sin costs. And that's what forgiveness for your sins cost. Breakdown number one. If I tell God I want to be saved, but I also tell him he's wrong about sin, it's not that big of a deal, then the God who gave his son to be sacrificed for my sins wants to know just exactly what is it you want to be saved from. Simply put, salvation is not difficult. It's the easiest thing in the world but I do have to decide which dynasty I want to be part of. Breakdown number two. The other breakdown could be over what it means to believe in Jesus. If you've ever read my book, My New Walk with Christ, which we offer to anyone here at New Spring in our, in our box at the end of the service, if you've ever read my book, you know I talk about what it means to believe because a lot of people are curious about this. I'm going to make, I mean, if believing on Jesus is what gets you into heaven, I want to make sure they do the right thing. So I wrote about what believing meant in the first century when those words were used. There are like three, three, I don't know if steps is the right word, there's just sort of three elements of believing. The first one is too easy. Believing means there has to be a message to be believed because you can't believe if there's nothing to believe. So first of all, there's got to be a message to be believed. Secondly, there's mental agreement. I agree with that. And then thirdly, I trust, I put my weight on it. I think in the book, I can't remember, but I think I told a story, an old story about a guy who was a tightrope walker walking across this great chasm, and he walked across the tightrope, and then he came back, and then he pushed a wheelbarrow across the tightrope. And then he asked the audience, how many of you think I could push a man across in a wheelbarrow? Everybody raised their hands. He said, okay, do I have any volunteers? That's what it means to trust. You get in a wheelbarrow. It's so simple. If you do that, God will keep his promise. But now think about those three elements of believing. Message to be believed, mental agreement, I trust. Where is the place for it most likely to break down? That first thing. What if the message is corrupted? Then someone would mentally agree with something that wasn't true. They would... This is why those people wind up in the queue in heaven trusting that they're going to get in and they find out they didn't get in because they didn't get the message. Well, the message is the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried, rose again on the third day. And anyone who wants salvation, if they turn from their sins and turn to Christ, they can be forgiven and have everlasting life. It's as simple as that. That is the message. But the Apostle Paul writes in the book of 2 Corinthians, and think about these words. He talked about false teachers, and he said they preach a, look at these words, different Jesus. And they preach a different gospel. Well, Paul wrote that almost 2,000 years ago, but it needed to be, the, the, the time for it to be most salient is in 2022. Because when the Barna group delved into what people believed, who did not believe Bible truth, but claim themselves to be Christians, there was one word that was real quickly overwhelming, and that is the word syncretism. Basically put, syncretism is like taking a little belief from this system, a little belief from that system. It's like going through a salad bar and picking some of this and some of this. Well, I don't believe this. I don't like that. It's not, I'm not going to take that, so I'm going to take a little bit from Christianity. I believe in Jesus, but then let me go talk about karma, which comes from Hinduism. Oh, yeah, let me talk about Zen, which comes from Buddhism. And so we're just going to, like, build this ourselves. Does anyone have the... The ability to just stop for a moment and say, do I think this has got equity in heaven? You would think a wise person would know, I made it all up. Forgive me for going into the weeds for just a moment, but syncretism is like a a secondary thing to something that's more primary. For the last 150 years in our world, There has been a prevailing philosophy, and I don't want to get in deep into philosophy because a lot of you are finally glad to be free from that from your first year at the university. By the way, isn't it amazing how they have a name for everything in philosophy? But there's one overarching philosophy that has governed our times, and it's in the groundwater of the church, and it's called existentialism. We are living in the age of existentialism. This is... So oversimplifying something maybe a little more complicated, but, but this will help. When Darwin came along with his thesis, his theory that said we, w- there is no God, we just kind of all came here through random, uh, random chance, um, there was no way of escaping the obvious ramification of that. Because if we are the product of accident, there's no God, then there is no such thing as good, there's no such thing as bad, there's no such thing as right, or no such thing as wrong, and most of all, there's no purpose. (laughs) Like the old Kansas rock song, all we are is dust in the wind. So if if Darwinism was right, then there's no good, no bad, no right, no wrong, no purpose to living. Well, modern men sort of like that. I mean, because now I don't have to worry about God anymore. And I can sort of accept that. But I don't really like that part about there being no purpose. That's where existentialism came in. Because existentialism said, so Darwin is right. But you know what? We can make up our purpose. And right? Well, right is what the collective decides that it is. Right is what the community standards say that it is. And purpose I'll make it up myself, and you've got your purpose, and I've got my purpose, and you've got your truth, and I've got my truth, you know. (laughs) You would think that a person who was academically honest with himself would admit to himself at that point, you know what? I made it all up. I made it all up. And so, what Paul said is there are people that like, well, I don't really like everything the Bible says about Jesus. I'm just sort of like project onto Jesus what I want. But please understand today, Jesus Christ is no shapeshifter. He is who He is. If you want to know who He is, let me just share some scripture and I'll let the Bible speak for itself. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was nothing made that was made. In him was life and the life was the hello light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. In the darkness, in love with this particular translation, it says the darkness could not overcome it and it won't. And the word became flesh and lived among us and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John fourteen six. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. In Philippians chapter 2, the Bible says he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly elevated him to the place of highest honor and given him the name above other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And that's who he is and he's not interested in negotiating away his identity I have to decide which destiny I want to be in and there's no getting around that the next sentence is the most important sentence of the sermon it is the easiest thing in the world to be saved Unless my unbelief makes it impossible. Let me say it one more time. It is the easiest thing in the world to be saved unless my... Notice I didn't say doubt. Doubt's a different thing. Unbelief is willful. It is the easiest thing in the world to be saved unless my unbelief makes it impossible. Well, I can't speak for anybody else. My choice is made. I won't be joining the deconstruction and I won't be joining the falling away as the Bible puts it. I'm cognizant of the fact that this world system under the last angry management of Satan will ultimately have no place for me. I'm perfectly content with that. And now as a kid, I read some verses and the older I get, the more they mean to me because I understand that if you stand with Jesus this world system that's headed toward the Antichrist and his system, it may look at you as wrong. Strike that. It will look. It's already looking at you as wrong. Hebrews 13. Jesus himself suffered outside the city gate so that his blood would make people holy holy there means set apart for god that's why we should go outside the camp to jesus and share in his disgrace and somebody will say well that doesn't make any sense to me why would i share in jesus disgrace verse 14 on this earth we don't have a city that lasts but we are waiting for such a city i want to tell you if you sell out for this culture it's not going to last. You're going to sell out for something that ultimately will have no value and a penalty that none of us should ever pay. I'm perfectly willing to stand with Jesus. And if that means I'm outside, I don't like being outside. I love getting along with everybody. But I won't trade Jesus for anybody's correctness. I won't do that. I don't want five minutes in hell, much less in eternity. You understand now why I told you this is the most important, most challenging message I've ever brought. You read with me in Second Timothy what my responsibility is. I believe with all my heart there's no blood on my hands. I believe I brought you the truth. And I know I pastor a megachurch. And people will say, you have to understand if you do that, you might not pastor a megachurch. Well, I'm thankful that everyone comes, and I hope we're always a blessing and add value. And I love you more than I can say. But I tell you, if my goal is to please the culture that ultimately is headed the wrong direction, Jesus Christ is going to stand before me, and I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. I really do believe I've told you the truth. So you have to decide. And I know that most of you say, Mark, I know I'm fine. I've I've made this decision. I've chosen my destiny. Because when you, well, when you choose your dynasty, you choose your destiny. Can't have different, you can't choose Satan's dynasty and get God's destiny. Most of you have already done this, but it's a moment of just checkup. That last minute checkup before you go to the airport. But there could be someone here today, and you say, Mark, this has been heavy, and it's not been easy to receive, but I think I really get the message, not from you, but I get the message from the Word of God, and I'm ready, I'm ready to take this step. Well, that's where we get to the easiest thing in the world. Because the Bible says God loves you. Jesus lived the life that you can't live. He was perfect for you. He died on the cross, and his blood was a currency that paid for your sins, past, present, and future. And if you will declare spiritual bankruptcy, admit to your sinfulness and turn to God and turn to Jesus as your Savior, you can be forgiven. Your name's written in the Lamb's book of life and you'll live forever. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. These are not magic words, but if you want to join me, you can. Would you just bow your heads with me? Dear God, I know I'm a sinner, but I believe you love me very much. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. Transfer me into your dynasty. Thank you for hearing my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. If you just pray with me, I have a gift box for you. Please stop and get it before you leave. You'll recognize all the info centers with this color. And then there's a New Spring Bible in this box. And then the book I talked to you about is in there. And then also, there's a journal. I think there's coupons for the coffee shop. So please stop and get that. Thank you so much for being here. We'll see you next weekend. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.